Joining me today is a man that I consider to be a great role model, Scottish racing driver Alan McNish. Thanks for joining me, Alan. Yeah, thank you very much, and thanks for the cup of tea. Very <laughs> nice to see you got Scottish blend in, especially. <laughs> Next time I will do. This time it was a little bit of Yorkshire tea. But uh, yeah, the reason I say that you're a great role, role model, I think uh, you're someone that's got things well balanced, you know, in terms of racing, mm. also business and a family man, because a lot of sportsmen, and they usually don't have uh, those things all together, whereas I'd say you've, you've got your shit together pretty well. I'm not really sure if I'm a very good juggler, but there's plenty <laughs> of juggling going on there. Uh, I suppose from my point of view, it all kind of happened, but not in the most logical way. And that was the reason that I've been involved in so many different areas of the motorsport business and the car industry anyway as well. Uh, just because I had to more than necessarily, it was a career path, if you like. Um, but I think it sort of balanced things out pretty well at the moment. So I'm retired now, so you know you've got plenty much more time just to sit back and enjoy life. <laughs> no, I think you're more on the road now than when uh, you're racing. But you've made a seamless transition from being a racing driver to now team principal mm. of uh, the Audi Formula One team. So that must be um, must be something nice. I see whenever I watch on TV, you get pretty well into it. You know, it is nice to see. It was funny actually because when I stopped racing, I'd had my time that was it I was kind of no more energy really and uh, I did a few different things with Audi afterwards and uh, I was I suppose I was trying to find something that really sparked the interest and when I turned up in the first race uh, as team principal for, for the Formula E team when we actually went into it officially it was a really bizarre thing it was just like that little fire had been started in my stomach again and that was something that had gone out no questions for me had gone out at the, at the end of, at the end of the last year of my career and it just lit it back up again and then i realized i still love this sport i love the competition i love the aggression of it and the finality of you win or you lose and uh, so yeah it sort of still makes me get up in the morning i like that uh, that's something i that I think I would do as well because I'm a fan of motorsports so you're the same you're a racing driver but you're also a fan so you always want to be part of it we grew up in the same way we kind of grew up in the same areas okay you speak funny and I speak normally but you know there's a little bit of water in between us but at the end of the day we were out there either two wheels or four wheels you know from before we could walk just about and so it's ingrained in us. I think it probably affected our school report cards a wee bit, eh? but uh, it's, it's part, it isn't part of your life, it is your life. Yeah. And that's to some extent where I'm very lucky, and I think you are as well, actually, Eugene, that you know, I've got a family and support around me that realises that they kind of do sometimes come very second, not just second, but very second. <laughs> but uh, the other side of it, you know, we've got a pretty good balance of life, I think you're right. Yeah, but that's our passion, isn't it? So whenever you can turn uh, what was a hobby into your job, it is, like the Americans say, living the dream. Mm. You said your last year of racing then, 2013, whenever you won the FAI World Endurance Championship that the spark had started to go out. You didn't do half bad then, all considered, because you went and won the title. No, it's true. In terms of the results, so that was actually, if you take big races, that was my best ever season. We won them all, won the World Championship and won the Tourist Trophy as in not the TT Isle of Man, obviously, but the Tourist Trophy where the name came from originally, which is the oldest uh, trophy in the world of four-wheel sport. And uh, so to win that, to win everything, to have the run through that I had, the only thing was I put so much emotional energy into it, not physical, because I was okay for that, but the emotional energy to deliver it. 
and it was like the final tick of the box because I'd been chasing the World Championship since 1985, since I lost it in karting and it pissed me off like you wouldn't believe in 1985 <laughs> took a long time to get over that and uh, we were close in 2012 because that's when the uh, the World Sports Car Championship started up again and finished second and so I gave everything for it in 13 but ultimately by doing that I didn't really have the desire or the energy to go and try and do the same thing again so it was a perfect time for me just to call it quits and say right okay that's it done and dusted yeah, I'd been racing for 32 years, you know, I was, I was not getting any faster. My brain definitely wasn't getting any quicker, and even although maybe, you know, I was still able to hang it in there, there was going to be some upstart coming kicking my backside pretty soon. Now, doing what you did then in your final year, that is the motorsport equivalent of, of the mic drop. It's just kind of like, right, what have you got for the title? Just go and win it, and then just <laughs> drop the mic and just say, right, I'm out of here. Well, I did that because I came home. Uh, we won the championship in China. I remember in the morning, the car was a, it was diabolical, really not nice to drive. And we were actually struggling pace-wise. And we eventually finished third. That was enough to, to seal the title. And I said to my teammates, look, guys, let's just get through this. In six months' time, people will only remember we won the title or lost it. They'll not remember if we won it by finishing third or scrapping for second or whatever, just get this one in the bag for Christ's sakes. Um, and I kind of in my mind decided that was going to be it. I hadn't told anybody and I came home. Uh, we actually, we went to Paris to film uh, a movie for the FIA for their end of season awards and uh, then came home on the Monday and uh, I was in the bath on the Tuesday morning and I said to Kelly, my wife, who sort of wandered by, by the way, that's it. Um, I'm stopping now. Finished. Wow. Done. Done and dusted. And uh, Kelly sort of sat there and she went, "Are you sure?" And I, yep. Uh, that's it. And she was the first person that I even gave a sniff to that this was in my mind. And uh, then she went, "You're not going to be staying around here, are you?" It was like the mass <laughs> panic that suddenly set in that I was going to be st stuck at home. And then she'd have to have a real marriage and not this sort of <laughs> this sort of half attempt at one that we kind of we have because of the distance side of things but uh, yeah I, I did it a wee bit of a different way in terms of that I didn't want any any focus or anybody discussing it or any so uh, anything going away from what we were trying to do and uh, thankfully it kind of worked out in the end I don't know what I'd have done if we hadn't have won yeah. that was the other thing I'm not really sure <laughs> No, I thought you were going to say there that Kelly then started to get emotional or, you know, tears started to run down her face. But, but you know nah, Kelly as well as I do in that respect. No, no, she wasn't. She was more interested whether I was going to get under her feet for the rest of the time. So, no, no. Well, that's one thing for sure. I think uh, in the last five years, I've, I've seen you less. You, you never stopped traveling, but uh, yeah, you're a busy body. I think, like you said, a 32-year career, so you're used to traveling. I don't think you can just go from 32 years traveling around the world to just then putting the feet up and putting the slippers on. You've got to keep going. No, I think that's the thing that I would say through my life. You've always got to have something to energize you and your career as well. You know, we've had, I've had good years and I've had bad years. I've been years when I've been on my knees thinking, Christ, how am I going to get something out of this? I've been years when I've been scratching thinking, right, how am I going to actually pay the bills at the end of the month? Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I've had years where the, everything I touch seemed to turn to gold. And uh, the, you've always got to have some goal and target, or I do anyway. And, and you know, I'd, I'd certainly ticked a lot of my driving goals. 
Um, but I wasn't 100% sure what my non-driving ones would be, but I knew that it was always got to be in, in the sport and in the industry because that's all I've known, you know, yeah. since day one. You know, my, my father had a car dealership, and so I've always been around cars. They were either for selling or for driving or for something, but it was always in that whole environment. And uh, I don't think I'll ever be out of that environment until the day I go out completely. No, I'm sure you're watching uh, TV or... Or maybe listen to the wireless. I'm not sure what era we're talking about well, here, Alan, back in the day. I don't know each second. <laughs> this was funny. I was clearing out my mum's house last week when I was in the Dumfries. You sent when you sent me the text. Yeah. And uh, you sent me the text and I sent you the picture back of Dumfries and the rolling hills of Galloway. And you thought it was Ireland or something. Yeah, that that clue what you're talking about. <laughs> when. Um, I was clearing out these pictures. And there were pictures in colour. And there was also ones in black and white. And... I am of the era where a photographer would come up and he would say, right, picture, 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 and then they go, and now colour. And really? the first ones would be in black and white, which was always for print media, and then the colour ones for whatever else. And so you used to have two cameras and you'd do a black and white and a colour one. See, now you're shocked, aren't you? No, I now am. you realise that I'm actually really old. <laughs> yeah, I was cracking a joke there and I'm thinking, that's something I didn't even know happened. But I'm thinking about whenever I started out and press releases were kind of done and they would fax them and all the rest and now we almost laugh about that. Yeah, you come from completely yeah, different era. I, I come from before the fax. I remember the first fax coming in the early 80s. I'm full Betamax video being yeah. the highlight of early technologies. You know, mobile phones, crikey. I remember time well before that. But it... It's been one cool thing, actually. I've seen the whole technology change through my career. You know, when I started racing, there was no data. Yep. You had a H-pattern gearbox, you had a clutch and a throttle, you had to, you know, heel and toe yourself. You had to, it was all manual. And the only thing with the pits was a stopwatch, but there was no radio communication with the car, nothing. And uh, we've gone through the whole data thing. We've gone through now into simulation, simulators being the key item. You don't track test. You do your all, everything before it. From the driving point of view, I started off in petrol. You know, I went to V8, V12, Formula 1 type sort of thing. And then to diesel, then diesel hybrid, then diesel hybrid with 50% electric, 50% uh, engine power. And then to a fully electric vehicle. So I've seen the complete swing of the technology change. in the car industry. And when you say about no data, you know, every, you know, riders, drivers now, the first thing they do is get on a computer to data. We never had a computer. Yeah. And never mind data. <laughs> and it was really by the seat of your pants working out, which I think I actually fitted very well with because I was quite good seat of the pants to work out what, what was good and what wasn't. But, uh, you know, it was definitely a different world today, that's for sure. Wow, that is mad when you consider how things have, have changed over the years. But one thing that then sticks in us across three decades, a fast driver is a fast driver. Yeah, so you it's the same. Yeah. drove everything. And yeah. it wasn't like whenever traction control came in that you didn't know how to do it and then a young kid had figured it out. I think that's what a lot of fans that maybe just aren't quite in though don't understand that yeah, if you know how to drive a car, whatever car it is, you're going to get the best out of it. Yeah, you've got... At the end of the day, you do, you adapt to the environment because the environment changes anyway. You know, when you go to Imola each year, it's not exactly the same Imola. The bike's changed a little bit. The tyres have changed a little bit. If it's switched from, say, Bridgetons to Michelins as the tyre manufacturer, the whole characteristics change. And so you just have to adapt to that all the time. Your whole career is about adapting, never mind through a whole a race weekend to the, to the rest of it. So, you know, I'm a big fan of agility of a 
of a sports person is a real key factor to their longevity. And it's something that in the early part of my career, to be honest, we tended to focus on single-seater the route to Formula One and did nothing else. Um, it's only been in the, I would say, the latter part of my career where people actually started to maybe do other things. And I think it was actually a better thing. Yeah. It was definitely gave you a wider skill set. Bikes, you do that much more. You know, you do a bit of motocross, you do a bit of trials, you do a bit of enduro, you do a bit of kind of every type of thing. Whereas, you know, car drivers in the 80s and 90s, they kind of stuck to their discipline and didn't look outside of it. Yeah, that's true because especially Mark Marquez was a guy in the last decade, he's really changed things. As a kid, his dad knew what he was doing with him because I think Casey Stoner's father yeah. had done the same. They had them out riding every type of bike and the skill set that develops yeah. is, is just something else and that's why Mark Mar- Marquez is able to do things that I can't fathom the way he picks up um, something in front yeah. and, and he drops the front yeah. Yeah, on his elbow and that's because of what he's um, learned himself yeah. through all these different disciplines. Yeah. So yeah, I'm always surprised whenever I see racing drivers that they aren't out carting and they're not doing something else because that's what we know. It's a funny one as well because rally drivers as well because they've got they've got a wide uh, variety of uh, surfaces they have to drive on, but the ones that are really good on gravel, they don't do they're doing it more now but they don't actually train so much on tarmac. Yeah. But I would look at it quite simply that if you've got a season. And 20% of your events are on one surface. I would train like hell for those 20% because that'll lose me the World Championship as opposed to anything else. Yeah. And the, you know, I think we've been maybe a bit more narrow-minded than, uh, than bike guys in terms of that. But that's just the way it is. But I think now it's, it's opening up a little bit more. So when you were a kid, you did actually do both though. You did a bit of off-road and... Uh Carton, I, so I saw a picture of you in a little motocross bike that was pretty I, cool. I started on a little Villa, a Walter Villa motorbike, <laughs> uh, which came back from Italy in the fearing of something else. I, I can't even remember what. I was like four or five or something. Because my mum and dad, my dad went to the Isle of Man every year from like 57, 58. And so I grew up with stories of Halewood and Agostini and all of that sort of stuff um, around Isle of Man. And uh, he also helped a guy that used to race over at the Northwest and, and uh, did the Scottish scene more than anything else. And so that was the sort of thing I grew up with, but I was more into motocross than anything else when I was a kid, but I was too small. So I was really, really, I'm small now. I was really small. <laughs> I was so small that when I had to go up from the 50cc to the 80cc, now my feet didn't touch the pegs. And that was at the point because they went from twin shock to cantilever, suspension on the rear. Wow. See, you didn't know you had twin shocks, did you? You just thought that was an historic race. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't, that was my year. <laughs> and so I had an Italjet RX50, and then I had to go to the 80. They were all cantilever suspension, higher seat heights, yeah. and I couldn't touch the pegs. And at that moment, that's where mum kind of went, uh, easy tiger, you know, get back off that. And uh, they, they, the sort of only thing that really ticked the box, if you like, was karting. Because, and that was quite fortunate because there was a guy from Dumfries, uh, where I'm from, uh, that was racing in Formula Ford at the time and winning the British Championship called David Leslie. Yeah. And David went on to be a lap record holder of the Mall, British touring car, you know, fighting for titles and different bits and pieces. And David uh, took me, because my dad was a mechanic for him at some races, and David took me and got me my first kart. So that kind of kick-started me off there. Otherwise, I would have probably been trying to follow 
you know, a bit of a motocross dodgy career, maybe, or whatever it turned out to be. Who knows what could have been? That could have been it's the to follow you, Eugene. It's not too late, Alan. You can still give it a go yet, right? Now. Are you joking? Motocross bikes. I can see if I can find an RX50. I could maybe still fit on that. I might fit on the 80cc now. <laughs> so what was your passion then whenever you were, say, 5 to 10? What would you have uh, caught up on when you're watching Formula One because that was uh, in the 70s then when Nicky Lauda, James Hunt, the famous era or were you watching some motocross or 500? Football. Rounders? Football. Yeah, I was, because I tended to follow football more than anything else. In terms of bikes and cars, I, I yeah followed it and I listened to it and everything else but I wouldn't say I was an ardent fan. I went with dad, you know, to different races and mum and things like that but I wouldn't necessarily say I was an ardent fan. But there's two things I loved. One was being out on my motorbike. So I'd come home from school and I'd get straight out there, whatever it was. And we had some fields and bits and pieces behind us and I used to cane it around there. Um, and the other one was football because it was at the era where Scotland were really quite strong. And uh, also the team that I supported, Nottingham Forest, were doing really well. And so I wanted to be in the Scottish team. Unfortunately, I would maybe have made the Scottish curling team, but definitely. <laughs> well, in fact, I wouldn't have even made that. I wouldn't have made anything to do with, with it. But uh, that was my thing at school. Um, but I was much more balanced and skilled on two and four wheels than I ever was a football or anything like that. I well, thank God for David Leslie then, because uh, well, I would not like to have seen you being a footballer. It's just not a sport. Well, you should have seen my legs. I, play, I played on Saturday football. We got beaten by Sanker 17-1. <laughs> I know we were that good I was in the team that was that good to get beaten 17-1 in Sanka uh, have you ever been be... to Sanka? no where's that? it's uh, halfway between Dumfries and Glasgow on the sort of road it's uh, an interesting place we got changed in the pub we're <laughs> under 14 or something we got maybe under 13 something like that got changed in the pub and the pub was open at the time and so you had to get changed behind the bar in the pub <laughs> oh. <laughs> Scottish football See, I know Dumfries mainly from that A75 because every time when we come over from Northern Ireland yeah. we used to get the ferry to Strandar and that road, that A75 towards Dumfries is like an hour and a half or something and it's just twisty roads and doing some dodgy manoeuvres trying to overtake trucks because you're always either chasing a ferry or trying to get to the, the racetrack so that's uh, <laughs> most of the time I was just passing through Dumfries. Well, that was the thing, you know, I always thought that one of the reasons, because there's quite a few good Scots in those rallying in cars and things at the time and also Neil McKenzie was uh, you know he was in MotoGP at the time with uh, with the Yamaha program and I, I thought that part of the reason that we're quite good is because we had a bit of a commitment to go somewhere yeah. you know it wasn't around the corner it was a full-on exactly. trek to get there and so therefore you wanted to come home you had came home with good stories and you came home with a thick ear and you know it was a bit of an autopsy on why it hadn't gone well but crikey me, to then turn left at Dumfries and then go another hour and a half to Stranraer, get the ferry, which was another hour and a half, and then to get home for you, it must have been a full-on three-day camel ride. <laughs> that's something that's been clear in all the previous episodes, is the further you have to travel, I think the more commitment, and often that's the part of the reason why the Kiwis were successful. Yeah. And then uh, my brothers and I, and also Jeremy McWilliams yeah. I spoke to, so for him it wasn't just British Championship, Back then, in the days of maps, as he said, he wasn't travelling across from Ireland to Scotland, down through Scotland, England, into France, and maybe down to Spain. I mean, that was, as you said, a three-day camel ride getting there. So it's mad to think about doing that. I, I don't know. I think uh, my dad had... 
he could just sit behind the wheel and he would have driven after working all week and then driving home after working all weekend on our bikes and stuff as well. Hell of a commitment compared to just what a lot of English family commitment as well. Yeah. That's the thing is, that, you know, it was commitment of the total family. I don't have any brothers or sisters, unlike you, but uh, it was, you know, mum, dad, van packed. As soon as I was out of school, we'd get straight down the M6, going to wherever it may be. And uh, it was, you know, it was a full family commitment to the whole thing. But, and again, that's, I think, karting for me gave me a lot of discipline. Yeah. There's no question, it, because I was totally flaky in terms of my thought process and everything else. Taught me a lot, gave me self-confidence, because I had no self-confidence at school. And uh, it gave me direction. But the other thing was, it was like a, it was a family tour. And the whole family were involved and invested in it, whether they liked it or not, they were. And uh, it was, you know, I really enjoyed it. Uh, same for us, it gave us something. We grew up in Northern Ireland and not through the worst of the Troubles. I think the Troubles uh, mostly passed by the time, mm. uh, what, 1998, the peace agreement. I was 12 by then. But uh, it's, like you said, it gave us a direction. and We never had any interest in what was going on. Yeah. Because for us, it wasn't about religion, what religion you were. Or we were motorbike racers. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all yeah. that mattered to yeah. us. Yeah, and that's a, that's a simple fact of life. I raced at Nuts Corner actually in 1984 when they opened the new circuit, which was probably not the new circuit now, but they opened the new circuit. So the first race on the new track then, uh, I did that race. And that was a Saturday race because you didn't race on a Sunday. Yeah. And then we went to Lark Hall, which is outside Glasgow on the Sunday for a Sunday event. So you were been in Northern Ireland on Saturday and then travelled back yes. on the Sunday? Yeah, we, oh. went, we came over on the ferry on the Friday night and uh, the so basically it was an overnight ferry and so got in got into the cabin we're actually sitting I remember sitting there having a cup of tea and it was about midnight and the captain came on and to be honest he shouldn't have been driving a ferry that boy had a good night and he, he needed a few hours sleep before he was driving a ferry and uh, then uh, we got off did the race got the ferry back the next night went uh, back up to Larkhall and did that well that's that's uh, something as well for us we did on a Saturday raced in Northern Ireland and went and slept in our own, our own beds and then there was a Donegal Championship yeah. on Sunday so that wasn't too bad. We used to have fun though on crossing the border though from the north end of the south for Donegal because at that stage then uh, there was the British soldiers and again, again we didn't know the guys were there with the, their guns and we used to know them by name. Hello, yeah, we're going through to, to race our motorbikes and that's, it just seems so bizarre. It's like something out of that show Dairy Girls. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. see now, that's what we were doing. Yeah. Uh, but there were good times. Um, one guy then you were mentioning about David Leslie. I do know um, another one, Dave Boyce, then because you mentioned mm-hmm. him also, David Coulthard, and he's even teaching the season yeah, 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 now yeah. as well. Yeah. So he Boise, must have yeah. uh, made a big impact in your early career as well. Boyce made a lot of impacts in a lot of careers. Uh, David as well, because between Dave Boyce, um, you know, he basically ran myself in karting, and then he ran uh, David. Coulthard as well uh, but Dave the interesting thing about Dave is that if you take David Leslie Dave Boyce David Coulthard Alan McNish all four of us were born in the same hospital in oh, Dumfries no. we're all from Dumfries and so there is that little bit of looking you know after each other in that way and Boyce was excellent absolutely instinctively excellent with young drivers where he kind of knew when to put the arm around the shoulder he knew when to kick them up the backside and he had a real charisma about him. But the thing about Boise that most people don't realise, he was an engineer right. by trade. And uh, he used to race himself. 
and he, he went into a competition to design the fuel tank for Williams and won and they offered him a job but because his wife was from Sunderland she didn't want to move down to Williams Grand Prix because she wanted to be near her family and so therefore he didn't pursue that and he pursued the career in, in karting and Boise was superb in terms of what he did for my career um, which the first time actually was Hacksaw and McCartan half the first time I ever met him he had a Hacksaw and it was Hacksaw and McCartan half because my dad had welded little bits into it to try and you know, for places for my feet to sit. And he said, that's stiffening up the car too much. And he was basically cutting them. Um, but he did so much for my career and so many drivers since then. And David Leslie was the other person. David took me, got me in the first cart, and then he started me racing cars. And uh, he did the same for David Coulthard after that, and then Dario Franchitti. Yeah. So between that sort of little group, then uh, really Boise and... And David, Leslie, I would say they've had quite a good success rate. Have they turned a lot of guys' hobbies into racing careers then? Wow, well, yeah. Yeah, but in, in done it and also done it in a very, I would say, you'll understand this, in, a, in not a flamboyant way, but a very clear base roots level of understanding of what you needed to do, how you needed to do it. And the fact was, the th the thing the thread between it all was it was all about hard work. Yeah. You know, you had to get in there and actually work hard at it and nothing came to you without it. And uh, so, uh, but Boyce is still around. Now, David, unfortunately, has passed on, but uh, I still see Dave quite a lot. As you said, he's looking after Dayton. And he took my son, Finley. He promised this to my dad. I didn't realise this. He promised he was going to take my son, Carton. And we went at the end of last year to Raura, where I did my first ever race. And uh, so it was November the 4th or something like that last year. And uh, okay, Was it in Scotland? Yeah, no, it's actually just south of Carlisle. So if you right, think back to your days, A75 M6, and you get to Carlisle, and you turn right there, and you go down to a place called Cockermouth, uh -huh. and it's right near Cockermouth. And so we went there and uh, Finlay ran around for the day. And it was quite funny because I remember Dave being there in like 1982, actually, that era. And, um, and it was just like a bit of a flashback in time. Now, it's very nostalgic, I've got to say. I'd say that would be nice going back to, to where it all began then. Well, it was, except Finlay got a bollocking for doing a couple of things wrong by Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it brought all the nostalgia back, is for the bollockings to come in again. <laughs> but November isn't a month that you want to be on a kart circuit in England, so per, uh, per Finlay, he's been brought up in Monaco, used to yeah, November, December, you still get good temperature. I can imagine he was freezing his balls off, was he? Yeah, well, it was quite funny because his grandmother wouldn't get out of the car, it was so cold. <laughs> she stayed in the car. She wanted to come and see him driving, but she wouldn't get out of the car. <laughs> Just sat in there freezing, but uh, yeah, he enjoyed it. He really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, he's uh, he's basketball height. I was too small when I was a kid. He's 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 taller than both of us. Yeah, he is a big lad, isn't he? When yeah, you think he is. He, I wonder where he gets his height from. Is Kelly said it? I family? asked that question too. But uh, Kelly's my uh, Kelly's mum and dad. Sorry, dad and brother were well over six foot. Right, and uh, I think he gets a lot of that. You better get a lot of that. Yeah, be better off with basketball then. Give it a go. A bit smarter than us, thought. Less risk. money. I'm not sure about that. I think we've done okay. Yeah, that's true. I know. We we always kind of think about um, motorsport and the risks of it and all the rest, but I wouldn't change it for the world. Like we said, we're still doing it. Even uh, 
some of the injuries that you had through your warm-up injuries you were lucky to escape some of the big crashes mm. was it 2011 the huge one at Le Mans yeah 11 like, I'd won every decade I raced for three decades and I had one huge one every shunt. decade and I didn't have many shunts I didn't have small shunts I either didn't have a shunt or I had a huge one yeah. and uh, 11 at Le Mans was a biggie and I had a biggie at Suzuka in Japan in Formula 1 um, and both of those were quite painful but the thing where I was quite fortunate I didn't break anything at all ever yeah. um, but I had concussions from them because just the ferocity the of them yeah, they were all 170 mile an hour plus shunts and so anything at that speed is a big crash as you know yeah. as I have watched you leaping off a bike in Imola at that sort of speed yeah, pretty so, good at that. yeah I did notice exit stage right <laughs> but, uh, there it was all concussions so it was a case of blurry vision for two or three months and you know headaches and everything else but thankfully everything returned back to pretty much normal so what was your first uh, crash then in Carton? Can you remember one that should break my leg? I did actually break my leg. Ah, I broke a leg at Crail and uh, tried to. I was second in the race and we came up to lap a back marker, Lawrence Keenan, and uh, the leader went to the inside and I went to the outside of Lawrence to get the line to come back up the straight. It was into a long tightening right hander, and unfortunately, a Lawrence got a wee bit of a fright when the leader dived down his inside and, I, I, and turned left and it clipped me and I flew over, flew into the field, broke my light, right leg above the ankle and both bones and went to Kirkcaldy Hospital in the back of a Peugeot 405 van. <laughs> and uh, no ambulances in those days. No, we were hardy. No need. And that was the, the, funnily enough, the only bone I ever broke and it was in Carton. Um, but in terms of everything else, it was all just bumps to the head basically. And well, that was the big. That was the first one, and it was the only one that really sort of shook me. Nothing, I would say, shook me to the point of considering stopping. Nothing yeah. like that. I'd never had anything like that at all. I, I had one in Suzuka, as I said to you, which was at one thirty R, a left hander, which is it was nearly flat out. I tried flat out, and it wasn't. So that's why I say nearly, <laughs> and uh, backed it through the the barrier there. And the next day, I did the warm-up. I wasn't, actually, after that, I wasn't allowed to race because he said I was a bit concussed. But uh, the, in the warm-up, there was definitely a mental fight with the corner to say, right, you bastard, you're not going to beat me. Yeah. You know, you beat me yesterday, but you're not today. And so lap three through there was full balls to the wall to go for it. But that was a mental battle with me as opposed to with anything else. It's the same as the same as getting back on the horse again. You've yeah. got to do it because you've got to break through that barrier. And well, obviously with a 32-year career, it definitely didn't deter you. No, 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 it didn't. And I was always quite clear with myself the day it did or if I've, yeah. you know, I wasn't quick enough or uh, I wasn't committed, then that would be it. Um, I suppose the day came where I could see that happening. And uh, so I stopped before it, but uh, yeah, it, there's you know, like any, any rider, driver, sports person, there's times when you're confident, there's times when you're not. And I think the recovery, how you fight through the difficult times, is actually a testament to how you are and how you'll grab onto and enjoy the good times. And I was quite fortunate that I had probably more good times than bad times, but uh, the bad times I think make you as a, as a competitor. No, oh, definitely. I think a big part of it is the mental side and it's how you bounce back from those because sometimes 
like you said, you can have a huge crash like that one I had in Emily yeah. that you described. That didn't rattle me at all because we knew what happened. Yeah, it rattled me. Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> but the, I knew what had happened because it was a freak one where my brake line had yeah. been hooked on the other rider's uh, little, you know, part that he had in the back of his rear swing arm just for yeah. hooking the rear stand in, and that was a, a freak thing. So I didn't think anything of it. The next morning uh, when I went out, Sunday morning, warm up, just went, did my first fly on that. Uh, as if nothing had happened but then like you said there is other crashes where then I've had I've had other brake failures yeah. and I'm going down the straight and starting to think oh this is awfully fast and just checking the brake yeah. lever so it's all about the head it's all mental so if it if it does affect you mentally you have to get over that and like you said if you're not able to get over it mentally then that's when uh, it's time to call it a day well it's funny you said that because um, I w- I always put things into boxes and if I understood the accident, it wasn't a problem. Mm-hmm. The biggest one that I struggled with was one where I didn't know what happened. I'd gone off, but I didn't know why I'd gone off. And that one really, I couldn't work out. And I had to really work hard to get rid of that. You know, they mentioned 2011 at, at Le Mans. I didn't see the, the Ferrari. It didn't see me. Two cars collided. Hey presto, off you go. Understood exactly what happened. Yeah. So then you can rectify why it doesn't happen again. But there was the one that I struggled with was the ones that, you know, that I I just didn't really understand why I went off. And that was the, the bigger ones. But, you know, you're right. Uh, Dad always said it. You win races in your head. You just, not, you win them before you get to the event and you win them in your head. And it's the mental strength. If you've got more than the next person, then you've got more chance of winning. Yeah, and you don't know what level of mental strength you have because even as a kid, for me, I was quite scared. I had a lot of fear of different things. And some of the crashes that I had, probably the best thing that could have happened to me, <laughs> yeah. not just for racing, but also just for life experiences because I had fear of so many different things, fear of the broken bone and then of what would come next, the concussion and everything else. And with every injury, it was a realisation of, oh, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. And I kind of got to the stage of, you know, getting through most injuries and then, even the one that I was still thinking, oh yeah, I've never, never had a proper dislocation. That's I've always been lucky to avoid that, and I've had that for a few, a few times with my wrist, and they put that back in, and as painful as it was at the time, like you said, able to put it into the box, just put it away, and just realize, yeah, that was a momentary pain. That was all about three seconds while that happened. So it's probably the fear of it, more so than actually going through the pain. Yeah, but I would also suggest that you've got a completely different pain threshold to me because I don't you said three seconds when it was actually happening dislocating your wrist I think I'd be screaming like <laughs> a banshee for months you know god almighty this is the exact reason my mother said that I shouldn't continue on a motorbike because I couldn't reach the pegs I think <laughs> I don't have the pain threshold oh she was a smart lady I've unfortunately the three times that I've broken my wrists I've got three wrists I've got two of them but as handy. you can see but I've uh, on special offer buy one get one <laughs> I broke the the left one twice now and the right one uh, once and all three of them have been broken in exactly the same way and the dislocation exactly the same I can't remember what way you call it but it's because of the way we land on our hands yeah, yeah. and uh, the first one of those and the, again this was the realisation of looking at my wrist and seeing it was a chicane there was an S in it and thinking to myself, ah, it's finally happened, they're going to have to put it back in place. But I'd crashed at the end of the day testing in Jerez, so the local hospital, I don't know, it was a trainee nurse hall, and the guy was instructing her what to do. And at the time, I thought, well, this is a bit bizarre. So she had a rope tied around her waist, and so it had to be because the doctor, he had to push down on it mm-hmm. to get it back in at the same time that she ran forward. 
So he was instructing him to her in Spanish what to do. So it was like, go. So she ran forward while he pushed down. And of course that didn't work. It took like three times. So yeah, it's probably lying saying it was three seconds of pain because it was like, nope, still haven't got it. And then lo and behold, then what's up? Are you sure they were doctors? You went to the hospital. That wasn't <laughs> yeah. in the vets or I something like that. You, you know, there was a bull outside that was well, that, needing some attendance afterwards. I thought this was the normal way of doing it until then lo and behold, this year when I broke the two wrists and looked at them again, dislocated in exactly the same way and thought, ah, remember that experience that I had? It's going to be the same mess now, but this time... The, the nurses knew what they were doing. There were some lovely nurses, like sort of 50, 60-year-old group of uh, Italian women. They were just chattering away as they did it. And they did the, the two wrists. They did one after the other. And as they put them in, well, there was some brute force, but they did it in one. They knew what they were doing. So, so they didn't have ropes. And, no ropes this time. Yeah, so now I realised... swinging from the chandeliers. <laughs> no. I realised that they do things maybe more correct in Italy than they do <laughs> in Spain at like 7 o'clock on a Friday evening or whatever it was. So... Uh, so that's the the model of the story is don't fall off in Jerez yeah don't fall off in Jerez <laughs> definitely not unless you go to the Tio Pepe Sherry factory to try and get your anaesthetics oh that wasn't a good experience but we'll move on from that I don't know why I decided to <laughs> go into detail <laughs> of that one I think that's a brilliant story I <laughs> love that that's just not something not right about that but hey and I still want to race motorbikes so uh, it hasn't deterred me Um Back to your career then, we went through Carton with uh, Boise and uh, the David Leslie. They were the guys that really made you into a racing driver then, but still when you were Carton, you were racing across the UK, but it was yeah. still a hobby, wasn't it? Whenever you went to single-seaters uh, then, in uh, 1998? No, no, 98? Sorry, 88. 88, come on. Sorry about that, it's 1988. <laughs> 87 actually. Um, I was 17, got my driving licence, and... Uh, it was the sort of natural thing. And we got this old Van Diemen from, uh, I can't even remember who it was actually. And uh, it had been around the block a wee bit, this car. And anyway, I, I raced that. Uh, and David Leslie's sort of basically, it was out of the back of a trailer. It was kind of him and me, sometimes my dad, sometimes uh, one of the mechanics from the garage and young David as well, David's son. And so it was kind of just a bit of a hodgepodge of whoever was around at the time. And uh, we did the two junior championships and some odd races in the sort of senior, sort of like the Rookies Cup, if you like. Think of the Red Bull Rookies Cup. It was like that. And yeah. sometimes we'd jump into the mainframe, uh, which we did on a couple of occasions, and uh, rocked on. But I have to say, at the end of that year, it wasn't really a career. I was still... Do, I, I went to I wasn't allowed I left school but I wasn't allowed just to sit in my thumb mm. so I had to go to Dumfries College of Technology and study something so I studied business studies which was 13 week modules where you got an exam at the end of the module and if you failed the exam you got your the same exam again two days later but with your books right so there was no way to fail this course at all it was just physically impossible so at the end of it I am an SNC Scottish National Certificate Business Studies graduate I like the word graduate <laughs> and I had to do that but uh, in reality it was at the end of that year in 88 where I was picked up by the Marlborough Young Driver Programme World Championship team it was called and then I had to move away from Dumfries and then it was it was like a real career but it was it was one of those real careers where you were full-time, 
but you weren't getting paid. Uh-huh. So it was, you know, you, the racing was paid for 100%, so I was really lucky there because I wouldn't have been able to do it otherwise, um, but I wasn't getting anything coming in. So my overdraft account was sort of creeping up a little bit, but hey, it was rock and roll, 1988. I was 18 years old and what the hell, free money, woo <laughs> And off we went. But at the end of the previous year, just to come back to the Formula Ford for a second, I would have been very happy to give up car racing and go back to karting because I hated Formula Ford. I was quick and I won races and bits and bobs, but I just didn't click with me at all. Zero. It was only when I got into a car with slicks and wings where all the sort of grip feelings and things that I had in karting sort of came flooding back to me. And then I would say that was my first real year of racing cars was when I got into that Opel Lotus as opposed to my first year of sliding around yeah. sideways and not really sure what the hell was going on in Formula Ford. So that must have been a difficult time to make ends meet. I do know that during your carton career you were selling gloves to yep. make ends meet. Yeah, yeah. Do you not think about oh, selling gloves? From day, I got, I got this box of gloves from... Uh, I had Joe Fama gloves. Anybody in motocross from the 80s remember Joe Fama gloves? And there was this box of gloves which were uh, leather gloves with a wee bit of rubber stripe down your finger and up onto the palm of your hand, which was to stop stones hitting your hand. And I used to sell those in Scotland for, I bought them for five quid each, sold them for 750 or eight quid if I could get away with it. Good margin. And uh, that's how I sort of wandered around when I was about 13 or 14 with this box of bloody gloves. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was quite, I was really lucky because I was at a time when there was a lot of money going into junior motorsport. Not like now, but uh, there was about four or five Red Bull type of programmes in junior motorsport and so if you were pretty good you got picked up by one or the other and uh, so as much as I you know there was no money coming in I, I had some personal sponsors that then were able to start supporting a wee bit and, and it all sort of rocked and rolled from there but uh, you know I was I was very happy my first ever paycheck wasn't a paycheck it was 50 pound notes in a brown envelope 50 pound notes, notes. 50, two and a half grand in 50 pound notes nice. for doing my cow in the F3 card obviously not in the bikes yeah. and uh, I got this money when I was in my cow in this envelope I thought Christ what am I going to do with this so I bought a money belt and I stuffed these 50s in this money belt folded them up like ironed them and everything got them into this and I, I looked like Mr Blobby coming back home with this bloody money belt and the good part of the story was I found the money belt uh, about two or three years ago when I was in Scotland and I went into the old room at the house and I found this money belt and I went inside it as every Scotsman does to see if there's any money <laughs> left and there were still two fifties in there and so, so I've kept the belt and I've kept the two fifties because that was the first time I've ever earned any money which was the end of 1989 Wow so that was uh, after Formula 3 yep. Formula 3 yep. and then you went to Macau yep got my first bit got of cash first page, and yeah. then fortunately from there been okay ever since so then after that, then you did leave the UK. You started uh, driving F3000, was it? Yeah, 3000, which was like F2 now. Yeah. And uh, raced in that for a few years. And it was it was really good. The cars were bloody brutal to drive. But you went from a 30-minute race in Formula 3 to an hour and a half race in 3000 yeah. with something that was much quicker. So they were big, heavy beasts. Um, but they were really quite fun to drive, I've got to say. And trying to knock on the door of Formula 1... Testing with McLaren for three years when Senna and Berger were there, uh, then moved to Benetton, uh, which had Michael Schumacher and uh, Ricardo Patrese at the time. Um, but I, 
the thing with the testing was fine. I enjoyed it and it gave great experience and it was kudos and everything else. And you did a lot of miles. But I, I was, I'm still racing. That's the thing. I'm a, a racer and I always wanted to race. And so when knocking on the door of Formula One and they weren't opening the door as wide as I would kind of hoped, there was a decision, you know, really, where do you go here? Yeah. You know, what do you do? Do you keep pushing for something that looks like it's not going to happen or do you make a sort of a bit of a sidestep? And just purely by chance, I had contact with Porsche uh, and they were coming back into sports car racing as a factory and they were looking to sort of, I would say, rejuvenate the driver lineup. And I went and did a test for them. Partly I wanted to see whether a sports car was something I could drive, would want to. And they were obviously looking at me saying, look, do we want this Scottish guy or not? And thankfully it worked because that whole thing just clicked and a year later won them all. So from, you know, having a whole load of momentum going towards Formula One and being the spotlight kid, for it all to fall away for different reasons. I was ill for a while and bits and bobs. Um, and the momentum to go out to it, suddenly then the momentum picked back up. And it took me to Toyota only because Porsche pulled out. Right. So I went to Toyota and then Toyota said, okay, we're going to Formula One. Do you want to come? And it was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And so I went from where not, you know, I say to you times when everything went really well, everything went really badly. Went from where everything I touched, I didn't seem to work to everything I touched seemed to work. Yeah. And so the career route's definitely not been the most obvious. But no, that's, uh, there's a saying, we have back home what's for you won't go by you. No, it's true, yeah. Then. So the fact that you had been pragmatic and dealt with the facts and said, okay, I've tried, I've tried, now I've got to go the sports car route and then look what happened, you know, with Toyota and then get back to Formula yeah. One just like that. It's, but it's also that I think the, the mental resilience of, you know, not getting knocked down and yeah. walking away from it. You know, just keep on pushing. And my dad, as a car salesman, he came out of the era where you basically picked up the phone book and you looked at it and you just phoned numbers off the phone book to sell cars. And so from his point of view, everything was a numbers game. If you knock on 20 doors, you've got more chance of somebody listening to you and if you knock on two. So you just get out there and you don't get, you don't get knocked down by it. And I think that mentality has been one that really helped me. Because he also kicked me up the backside on quite a few occasions, told me to get back in the ring there, come on, son. And uh, that, I would say, has been one of the best things that uh, my dad taught me over the time, was just, you know, get straight back into it. Yeah, you're one of the most positive people I know, I have to say. And that's, really? Uh, yeah. You, I, you, you don't know many people. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no. because no, you, you never get down, and that's impressive to do that, because you, you talked about it there, and that's, whenever you get something just, a car just being dangled in front of you and it's tough to get to the stage of saying oh, okay enough's enough and, yeah. and turn that way because there's some people that kind of get embittered and just kind of keep fighting and and never get over it and maybe say yeah if only this if only that had happened and i was you know the woe was me sort mm. of thing was it like you said but don't think that i never sort of was a bit embittered and yeah, of course, twisted yeah. and things like that and think oh christ what it could have what could have been um but I was able to adapt and the thing I would say is, uh, you know, I can't change yesterday, I can only change tomorrow sort of mentality. So if I go into tomorrow with, you know, right, it's another day, let's go for it again, then I've got more chance of it in in working. But uh, I I think it is very much uh, part of the mentality of anybody in, in sport that is there for a long time. 
because it's not an easy business. No. You know, a lot of people, and I think people listening to your podcast, you know, they, they're kind of similar mentality people anyway. But uh, most people see the glitz and glamour and the podium ceremonies and the parties and everything else. They don't actually see the fact you're slogging around, you know, you out on the bike, uh, cycling, training, the recovery from the injuries, the sort of in early careers, worrying what was going to happen when you get to October and what you're going to be doing for the next year. You know, are you going to be racing? Are you not? How to put the deals together, get the sponsor where he's just on the hook and then suddenly says, no, he can't because of something else happened. And all of these things, it's just a roller coaster of an emotion. But it does take somebody that's pretty resilient, I think, to be able to, A, want to be on that roller coaster, B, kind of perversely enjoy it as well, and uh, then follow it through to the end of the ride. I think that's the toughest part of our job, in my opinion. We talked before about horrific injuries and that doesn't bother me you just get over that for me it's the part of being unemployed yeah. at least once every it depends what contract you're on usually it's two years and that's tough yeah. you know in the real world you may get a P45 at one stage in your life but for us we know that it's coming to an end a two year contract is usually a one and a half year yeah. contract isn't it Yeah. so that is the tough part and what happened to me last year it's a, it's always a big wake up call and there was a it came very close to being sitting on the couch yeah. without a job so like you said, you've got to keep knocking on those doors until one opens. Yeah, you do. And it, it's, I actually, um, I've kept a whole load of faxes. You know, you mentioned that fax from the prehistoric era. I've kept a whole load of faxes to give to my son and daughter. And there was, they're from 1994-95. I said there was a period where things were not running. Right. And 94-95, where I was doing odd job bits here and there. And uh, they're to teams in America, teams in Europe, teams in the UK, teams in Japan saying, give us a job, I can do that. You know, dear Mr. Moriyama, you know, it's good to speak to you. And I was getting up at six o'clock in the morning to phone Japan and all these sort of different things. And it's just a whole load of them because I'd actually forgotten how much effort I'd put in. Uh And these were hard documented facts that I had put the effort in. And that's what you do have to do. Um, You know, they're... Probably Finley will stick them straight in the fire or something, use them as fire lighters. But, you know, it is it is a good reminder when you look back because once your career is established, it is easy to forget how tough that is. And I tell you, it's painful. I've had sleepless nights with the adrenaline twisting in your stomach where you just hope that it's going to work. Or you go to a shootout test, which I always hated those because... I did one with Alex Wurtz, actually. Alex Wurtz, who's uh, somebody that lives around here with us, as you know, and Alex and I uh, did a shootout test for Porsche at and the same time. you didn't know Alex before this stage? I knew him vaguely, but not, not really. And uh, that was actually where our sort of friendship... But at the end, in, in this situation, he went off and raced for Merck and I raced for Porsche and both of us took our careers forward. But in that situation, one's going to be happy and the other one's going to be sad. That's brutal. You know, you've got one winner and one loser out of it. And now as a team principal, the funny thing is we're actually looking at some driver options and it comes down to it that you need to see them both in action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's the only way to do it. it is, but it's horrible to see the pain on somebody's face because they know that their career can decide on this one half day or day's testing or whatever it may be. Well, it's what we see on these TV shows, X Factor and all the rest, you know. Yeah. Not saying I watch them, but <laughs> whenever you do see the semi-finals or the finals, you know, that devastation, because that's your dream and it's exactly the same as what you described. Yeah. It's going to be somebody's going to go home elated and the other one's just going to be, well, you know. 
I suppose that's like every Sunday afternoon, though. Yeah. So the winner goes home elated, and everybody else goes home with a, a varying level of pissed offness. Uh, we're Irish and Scottish, so there's only one answer alcohol, because that works to celebrate and it also works to commiserate. <laughs> that's the perfect answer on a Sunday evening, I think. Just a Sunday. Yeah. Remember, you raced on Saturdays, though. Oh, yeah, yeah, true. Um, now, that's nice, though, that you said you worked so long to get to Formula One and then your career was going a different way and then lo and behold you end up with the Toyota F1 team so mm. I bet that was uh, just nice to, to actually reach the pinnacle and be there for a season because um, if you hadn't have done that year maybe you might look back on things a bit differently it's true yeah you know I, I look back on it with it's sort of bittersweet in a way you know you achieve one of your goals he set everyone sets out his four wheels he set out to race in Formula 1 um, it didn't herald the results that I hoped but in reality I don't think it was ever going to in all honesty Eugene it was 10 years too late for me I was 32 Yeah. Uh, if it had happened with the momentum when I first got in at McLaren Benetton then I think I would have been in much better shape the only thing was I wasn't as prepared then because it was the era where data was just coming in. And so I was actually a wee bit before my time and and uh, it, it didn't work out, but I was probably too late in reality. And at the same time, I still developed massively through that year. No question, I developed as a driver, I developed as a person. I was much stronger in my convictions of what I wanted and what I didn't want out of a team. And so all in all, it was a, it was a big moment. But you're going to Manicure, you said. Yeah. We're doing a test in July in 2001. And I got a phone call from Ovi Anderson, who was a boss at Toyota at the time. And Ovi said, uh, in his very Swedish way, he said, yeah, yeah. So Ovi, um, what's happening? When are you making a decision about next year? I said, oh, we've already made it. So you're in the car. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> get back to testing. And it was like, what, you've already made it? Why didn't you bloody tell me? You know, for Christ's sakes, I've been panicking about this. And uh, then that was a moment. I was actually walking around the outside of turn one, you know, that left hand and then into the right. Uh-huh. And uh, that, was, that was it done and dusted. But it was, it was cool because, you know, to be the first ever contracted Toyota driver, considering Toyota is quite a big player in the world of the car industry, yeah. um, was quite a nice wee thing. It's just, unfortunately, it, uh, the actual season ended in a crumpled heap at Suzuka. Well, there you go. <laughs> that was your parting gift. <laughs> My parting gift. There's your car. <laughs> and you were already living in Monaco at that stage. So when, yeah. what year did you and Kelly get married then? Uh, 2002. 16th of December, 2002. Right. Which was the reason, yeah, I think like most men, I was a bit of a commitment phobe when it came to this. And uh, Kelly was very clever in the way she explained it to me. She said, look, it's a bit like being a test driver. And every year, your boss comes to you and says, hey, you did a really good job. I would like to give you a race seat, but maybe next year. Right. <laughs> but someday, you just don't want to keep being a test driver. You want to be a race driver. And so, therefore, you go and actually look for race seats elsewhere. And I thought, oh, no, no, easy, easy, Tiger, easy. <laughs> don't fancy that. I thought it was a really clever way to put it across. Well, and so, yeah, uh, she... Then when I... when we said right okay propose get married uh, she went straight to the Formula 1 calendar 
the 15th of December was the last date in the year where you could test. So she knew I had no excuse on the 16th of December and booked the venue and booked everything. And I was like, I was given, there you go. You've got nothing, that's it. Once you commit, you commit. You know, boom, straight in. So you were almost like a guest at your own wedding then. I'm sure Kelly just took care of everything and then you just arrived. I signed the contract at my wedding. And not the contract for the wedding. I actually signed a Formula One contract with Renault for the next year. After, just after the ceremony had to be the test because it, that. yep because it had to happen and it had to go to the contracts recognition board by the following night and so that was the last day that it physically could be signed you old romantic you Alan well I'll tell you yeah. well, I had to pay for the wedding somehow for Christ's yeah. sakes <laughs> oh, it reminds me of my brother Michael's wedding we kept him gone because Michael is so easy gone and his wife Jodie for the couple of years before you know she'd been planning her wedding since she was well, three years old almost yeah. And when you could see Michael's face at his wedding, we were joking. It was like, Michael is just a plus one at his old wedding. You could yeah. see him looking around going, oh, wow, that looks amazing. Oh, what's coming next? Yeah. He didn't know. Oh, God. I, I went down to the room uh, in the day of the wedding and, and I saw the table placemats and everything else. And I thought, they shouldn't be sitting there. Started moving them around. Don't ever do that, by the way. If your wife has set out the place names on the tables, never, ever change them. <laughs> That is just the one of, uh, clearly I wasn't aware of all the dynamics that went on in our family, but uh, I am now, yeah. <laughs> it's suffice to say. I was just thinking then whenever you, you get married, must have been around that stage because I remember Kelly telling me a little bit of that story, but I hadn't heard it from your side and yeah, Kelly was a little bit more gentle with how she told it, but I can imagine your version of the directness and here's this analogy, Alan. Yeah. It's oh, time God, to no, no. get off the pot, what were yeah. you doing? Yeah, well, that was the sort of shortened version shit that I got off the board. <laughs> but yeah, that was 2002, so, you know, we're 17 years down the line at the end of this year. Wow. No, it's, uh, Coming up to the golden watch era, really, just about. Golden watch era? Yeah, uh, 25 years, isn't it? Yeah, Is golden right? watch, yeah. Wow, like you do think. if you work at a company. So yeah, Pippa and I will be married four years, and I think five is paper. I hope five is paper, maybe I'm wrong. God, no, no, it doesn't mean you see buy a newspaper, just so you know. Ah, right, right. Yeah, it's not the motorcycle <laughs> news you're going to be giving her. Do they no. still have MCN? Yeah, still yeah. Every, every Wednesday, same day as uh, released my podcast. I think Wednesday is special, a special day for us, I remember. The Bible. Yeah, that was our Wednesday Bible. But and now you're uh, you're already career, I didn't know much about I know after that period because you're a sports car racing legend mm-hmm. with what you've achieved. Uh, time in America, and I think most people know them, what you've achieved, especially with Audi coming through, winning that title in the final year, 2013, mic drop and just getting the hell out of there. But that's, uh, that was pretty perfect the way you did that. And then my following on with a a great brand like Audi to be um, the team principal. So I don't know how you you still do it. The amount of days that you do on the road though, it's something to behold. I like getting home between races, but you guys, you never stop. I don't know. I, it's worked out. We did, when we're racing in America, it was busy because there was 12 races out there a year. But uh, if oh, you're you successful... Yeah, back and forward yeah, 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 yeah. Travel for everyone. Um, but if you win, then it's easier because you've got a bit more energy. When If, you, if you're if you losing, then it becomes heavier and tougher and everything else. And so I I loved it. I loved sports cars. I liked the, the style of racing. I liked the fact that it was endurance, but it was absolute cut and thrust. You know, we won... Uh, race in fact I remember the last two races of 2007 series in, in the States in the American Championships we won uh, one race by nine tenths of a second 
which was a four-hour race, and we won the thousand miles, which was nine-hour race by four tenths of a second. And so you know those tights and margins, they were absolute aggression, cut and thrust to the end. And I, I loved that about it. I really did. And I liked the the fact that you were overtaking the, you know, you had to adapt as a driver. You were doing so many different things, and you had to throw the car around a lot. And so it was, I think it probably fitted my style of driving very, very well, if I'm honest with you. And uh, it was, you know, I used a lot of the sort of skills and things that I, I developed in karting and back in the 80s. But uh, since then, you know, obviously hanging up the helmet never bothered me. That was it. It was done and dusted. But I do get a kick out of, you know, running the, the Formula E team. Because it's something completely new. You know, you're... The reason I was late coming in here was because we were dealing with simulator dates where I had them for one purpose, but the the design side wanted it for rear suspension geometry purposes. And it's, it, just the whole management of a program, I really do enjoy. Yeah, it's a, it's a good show. I enjoy watching it the first few years. I uh, wasn't too sure about it, but now it is no, good. And with so many different race winners, it's yeah. a hell of a show. And the championship organisers, what they do, they, they understand it well because... It keeps me tuning in yeah. on a Saturday morning, and great to see a lot of the guys I know out there. Yeah, no, it's a, well, it's a new championship, and that's the thing about it. And Moto E's going to, I think they're going in a slightly different direction with their electric programs, in the way they do it. But uh, it's really good because it's only in city centres. So in a city centre, the circuit actually is different every year, even though you might go back to roughly the same layout. It's not the same. Um, they're big cities, and. The cars are quick enough to sort of keep you honest. Uh, they're tough to drive because they don't have any downforce and they're basically an all-weather tyre. And they've got a hell of a lot of torque. So, you know, you've got to work at it. And it, with it being a one-day event as well, if you make any mistakes, you're out of the equation. No questions. Uh, yeah. And so you cannot get back from it. Being a street circuit, out, you know, a mistake usually means, you know, half the car missing. And so in that respect, I think it uh, does sort of keep you really focused and as a team as well keeps us really focused and uh, it's it's developed very well as a championship actually yeah. really really well better than I expected because I was with you I was at the whole question mark what the heck's this about but uh, when you go to see it live and uh, then actually it's got a, a really different dynamic and feel about it oh well, final question then you not fancy jumping into one of them just to see because it must be a completely different way of driving to I've what you grew up with Oh, you have? Yeah, I drove it onto a stage in Barcelona <laughs> at the big Audi event of the year in front of all the board members. Did a donut. Still can do a or donut. cold tyres? Well, you can't even heat the tyres, so they're not bloody anything. Did a donut and drove back off again. Yeah. So I have actually driven it. Now you answered my question. And then, that was so. my last time in a racing car. I can't see the bonnet of the bloody car, never mind the first <laughs> corner. Are you joking? No, I've got no desire at all to strap myself into one of those things, sweat like hell, drive around, trying to be millimetre perfect against the wall, trying to be one-tenth of a second quicker than the next person. No, those days are much better with our two race drivers. Now, and you know, you know, like you said, you called it time six years ago, and that's that. So uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you, Alad. Uh, Love that. And you're very engaging, and I could just listen to you all day. So really appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much, Eugene. Good to see you and looking forward to seeing you back in the bike. Yeah, looking forward to it. Thanks, Alan.